Hello, it's Yotam here. Thank you for continuing to listen to Simple Pleasures. And for anyone new here, I hope you enjoy the series. I wanted to let you know that I have a new cookbook out this September, co-written with Easter Belfridge, who works with me in my test kitchen. It's called Ottolenghi Flavor and is available to order now. Flavor is a vegetable-centered cookbook which focuses on all the different ways in which you can dial up flavor and create fireworks in your cooking, true to the Ottolenghi spirit. Hello and welcome to Simple Pleasures with me, Yotam Ottolenghi. This is a series in which I invite you and a special guest to my home to discuss the simple pleasures in life. From food, mainly food actually, to travel, to art, to food again. We discuss all of this over dishes from my new cookbook, Ottolenghi Simple. To me, simple means ease. It means less anxiety and less stress, doing things that are comfortable and familiar and not always massively challenging. I want to take the guilt out of the equation and inject an extra dose of joy. This week's guest is a real treat. He's one of the UK's best-known comedic actors, an author, a presenter, and the nicest man in Britain. So I heard. It's Michael Palin. So what to cook for Michael? I decided on burrata and char-grilled grapes to start with, pappardelle with rose harissa, black olives and capers, and alongside some gem lettuce with refrigerated dressing, and we finish off with sweet and salty cheesecake with cherries. So let's enjoy Simple Pleasures with Michael Palin. Hello, Michael. Hello, Yotam. Good morning. Thank you for coming here. Oh, nice. It's a total pleasure. I've got a I whole... think it's going to be a total pleasure. Yeah, it's going That's to be a, nice a simple picture. pleasure. Thank you. Those are lemons. Yeah, lemons. Yeah, lovely. <laughs> Your work? No, that is a work of an Argentinian friend of a friend artist, mm. and she made it. It was in my one of our restaurants for a few years, and then yeah. we had enough of it, and then I <laughs> appropriated it and brought it here. Yeah. I read that you're the nicest man in Britain. Is That's that a true? slur. I... It's a terrible <laughs> slur, Yotam. I have to live with this, you know? Uh, I think you I'm, can. I'm, I'm, I, I'm a great appreciator of things, put it that way. Okay. I'm not particularly nice, you know. Well, I've watched, really... you, I've watched you engage with... Uh, so, sorry, this is Michael Palin, and I'm, I, there's so many titles I can give you. I'm just going to assume people would know, and then we'll talk about all the amazing things that you've done over the years. But of what you talk to people when you travel all over the world, and I can see why they would say that, because when you don't share a language with someone, it's very easy to get frustrated. But for you, it seems like you, you make the most out of it. Well, it was a big challenge to me, because I, I, when I was young, I didn't travel, and I was, my reluctance to travel was partly because I felt I, I won't be able to deal with the language. Language is something that's going to keep us apart. When I was asked to do Around the World in 80 Days, there was no way I could learn all the languages on the way around. So I just had to go for it and, and improvise and smile a lot and, you know, do the normal things you do when you don't know the language. And I suddenly realised that people will communicate with you. People will give back some, some hospitality, friendship. They want to. And they, they don't worry that you can't speak the language. They appreciate it if you know one word or something like that or a phrase. But basically, they just want to talk to you. They want to get something back as well. But it's also something wonderful for TV, these moments where 
you say something, obviously the other side doesn't understand. They say something you don't understand. And then you could just do whatever you like with it. Oh. It wouldn't work on a podcast. No, no. no. <laughs> it wouldn't be a different kind of podcast. You'd have to follow it yourself with a dictionary. It's had some wonderful moments where we've just been at total cross-purposes. I remember going across the Quay River and we were in a, in a little dow and I was being told to start the engine and then we talk and start the engine and off we go. And... So I said to this, this guy, the little Vietnamese guy, OK, so start the engine now. And he goes, yes, oh, yeah. I said, no, no, we, we, we go across the other side of the river. He said, yeah, yeah. And he was looking at the camera all the time. I wish people and, could see uh, your face. So I said, no, so now start the engine now. And he said, start, start, start engine now. I said, yeah, start engine now. He goes, yeah. And it was almost <laughs> as though he was, thought, thought it was a comedy routine that he was applying. Eventually, we got the engine started, and it was hilarious. We got across the Huey River, very beautiful. The other side, we were going to, going to eat, actually. And so I said, that's, that's fine, just stop the engine now. But stop the engine now. Stop engine now? And I said, yeah, stop the engine. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just a completely to total sort of uh, cross-purposes. But actually, it made for a very funny sequence. Yeah. I became totally unafraid of, of, of making a fool of myself, which is something you have to get over when you're doing a travel series. Well, for a comedian, it's kind of easy, right? Like, Well, well yeah, yes. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I like people to laugh at me, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I like to be in control as well. Uh, but, no, it was... It, it, I, I could see the funny side, but also... I remember in a yurt in, in Tibet, just with a, a, a yak herder, and we talked for about 15 minutes, neither of us understanding what the other was saying, but we were inside the yurt, his two children were there, his wife was there, sort of churning butter. And we just talked about the children. I said, there was always one isn't there who cries, and the other one tries to be very nice, and he goes, he says something in Tibet, and we kind of knew through the children exactly what was going on. So it was a universal situation Fantastic. with those children and, and right. the wife cooking and all that sort of stuff <laughs> and him sitting around. So I'll be the wife cooking now and I'll... <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well. Yeah. Uh, so I prepared some uh, char-grilled grapes with burrata. Fantastic. That would be our starter with Lovely. some basil. Mm. And then uh, some uh, parpadelli with harissa, olives and capers. Uh, mm. So it's a kind of like a north African pasta, oh, right? Okay, yeah. and right. Uh, some gem lettuce salad with a, what I call a refrigerated dressing, which is essentially everything you have at the bottle of your fridge blitzed together. Good, avocado and ginger, dill, basil, parsley, yeah. a bunch of other things, and then a, you've obviously a, got a lot at the bottom of your skin. fridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a, no, yeah. well that day there was a lot. Now yeah. it turned into a recipe, so everybody has to follow it like <laughs> to the T. So um, I'll just. Do, Throw the pasta in. Okay. And cook that. Where did you originally learn your time? Was it sort of at your mother's knee or uh, in, uh, a little something bit, you taught yourself? A little bit at my parents' knees. So my dad, you can hear it on my surname, is Italian. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Jewish Italian. And my mum is, mm. her family is from Germany. So when I was growing up, oh. In Israel, it was very European food, Southern European and Northern yeah. European. Uh, but then when I walked out into the streets, you know, it was the Middle Eastern business, you know, Palestinian mm -hmm. food, which was a completely different kind of food, you know, much less structured, much more kind of, yes. you know, in restaurants with, a, you know, just big tables full of food. Yeah. So I kind of, I think I consider myself very lucky to have been exposed to mm. quite a lot of food cultures at a very young age. 
and I think that affected the way I cooked. Also, I think because I don't feel like I'm committed to one particular culture or shackled down by one tradition. You know, there is there was a lot there, so I I kind of feel free to mix and match when I can, as long as it works. I don't know if it always works. But... Well, it's a bit like going around the world and not knowing the language. You know, you're not sure if it's going to work or not, but you've got to have a go. <laughs> you've got to have a go, and once you've um, succeeded once or twice, you yeah. just know that it works, right? And um, Michael, so <clears throat> you traveled a lot and I was we were just talking now before we started about grandchildren when your kids were growing up were you traveling then so how was it not to, to be away from your from your family you know it sort of we didn't stop and have a great debate about it when I was going to do the long journeys it was just a lot of my work involved up to that time going away filming for three or four weeks or something like that or, or sometimes a couple of months so they were used to seeing this man disappear and always come back with something from some foreign country. We well, say, oh, yes, we've got to find that. But they got to the stage by that time. I mean, they were, they were at school sort of... When did I do Round the World in 80 days? 88? Yeah, so they were in their teens anyway. Yeah. And they have their own world. They were doing their own thing and getting on with life and finding out about things. And suddenly I, I was gone and we didn't make a great big thing about it. And that was the way I preferred it. I did miss them. Um, but they, uh, you know, they, they dealt with it very well. My wife is extremely... Supportive, so, huh? so Well, she's supportive, but also sort of very... She can look after the house extremely well, probably looks after it better when I'm not there than when <laughs> I'm there. When you're not you know, making she's a got mess. This, yeah, she's got this system. And my eldest son, it was one of them, we were doing full circle, I think. He arrived fairly soon after I'd gone, and he, he said, where's Dad? And, and my wife said, oh, he's gone, he's, got, he's doing a series around the Pacific. How long have we gone for? Well, it could be a sort of three or four months. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I need some money. <laughs> and it was just... Was so it. I was rather... It was very nice, the way they do it. They weren't sort of, oh, Daddy, you've gone. And the same way when I came back, it wasn't really what people think. I you know, sit around the table and hear all the stories of where you've been, travellers' tales. I thought it would be that, but it wasn't. They were not there. Oh, no, not, know, yeah. and, they, and my wife had gone out to badminton that night or something like that. The <laughs> and you just you arrived there. There's a little note in the... You know, and and you, can't, you can't sort of expect to come back and tell them all about everywhere you've been because, you know, that, that's sort of... You have to, you have to give about, a, I, I think, several days before you really start talking about it because you forget their life has gone on. They've had their yeah. own crises, problems. You know, a teenager... They've got far more things to talk about. To, well, they won't talk about to you, but far more things have happened to, to them, probably in the short time, than happened to me, just because I've been to this country or that country. Isn't one thing or yeah, the other? Yeah, I, I have the same. When I travel on book tours, yes. which I'm sure you do too, I come back and you're kind of on that. I come from you know being a few weeks. I never go for more than three weeks away, and we've got very little children. So as soon as I arrived, I walk into the door, and Carl, my husband, he hands me over our little son, Flynn, who is still in his nappies and goes, go change a nappy before we talk about <laughs> yes, anything yes, else. Yeah. That's the kind of, that's the... the I'm afraid there is that, yes. <laughs> now you're going to pay for that nice time abroad. And whatever you say about, oh, it was awful, you know, we cut across the desert and there was no food and, and the vehicles were falling apart and, you know, broke my leg and all that. And oh, come on, don't pretend you didn't have a good time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very hard to persuade. I get that too. Very hard to persuade one's family that going abroad is anything other than a cushy job. Which, yeah, of course, which, 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 which of course, which is, of course, it is, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you, you know, you know. Even well when you know. do book signings, you still go to a 
hotel room with no responsibilities and no, yeah. you, know, you don't need to look after, you know, after anyone else but, but yourself. And it's yeah. all very, very comfortable. But did, did you ever feel, and I, know I shouldn't be, probably be asking that, but do you ever, ever feel that you have, that it was just too much, too hard, too extreme, like, you know, being away for months and months and, and being in those particular conditions uh, that are possibly challenging? Or you, mm. I saw you on a hammock, sleeping the whole night on a hammock. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in Brazil, and that yeah. seemed like I wouldn't sleep for a second. Really, it's great. You slept the Have whole night. Have you never night. slept in a hammock? I fell asleep I on a really hammock for like you. not for like half an yeah. hour, but yeah. then I, I would go to bed. Well, it was either you were either hammock class, which is absolutely jammed together, or downstairs where there were no hammocks or anything. It was blazingly hot. So hammock class. So was hammock the... class was the comfortable bit. Okay. So we were in the hammocks all day long. That wasn't particularly painful. I think sometimes. What, Sometimes what other, what it, other painful things happen to you? I mean, you would have dietary problems. I remember being in... Oh, I was in, going to talk to you about food, actually. Well, were you? Yes. <laughs> I don't want to put us off our lunch. No, you but can, well, let's our, get all I, this out of the way and then we all can right. eat. Well, I'll just say that, as you know, food is one of those things that signifies hospitality. It's one of the great things that brings you together if you don't speak the language. Food and comedy. Food and, and comedy, and sport. well, there you... And children, actually, is those four things. Four. But... Uh, a lot of people say, why do you eat that food? You know, that strange foreign food. And I said, well, come on, that's not strange to them. That's what they eat in their country. I can't go there and, and bring out a sort of Marks and Spencer's pork pie or something like that and start eating Which that. Which would be very disgusting to them, right? It would be very disgusting <laughs> to them. We did actually... I've never, I've never got the cold pork pie until after only having living here for a long time. I yeah. got the whole day deal. No, there are other the things. jellied cold yeah. thing that it's just weird. Well, you don't need it. No. <laughs> you have many other alternatives. But I do remember when we did uh, Around the World in 80 Days and we were kind of making up our own rules. We never, re- I don't think it'd be anything like that where you're going to be away for as long as it took to get around the world with the crew. And the crew changed in, in Hong Kong, but basically you were working with people a lot of the time. And our sound man particularly was very, very nervous of foreign food. And we op- he opened a tin. We were on this dhow and it was really just a... Uh, a lot of fishermen from Gujarat in, in, in northern India. Um, there weren't people with much money. They were pretty poor. Yet our salmon decided he wouldn't, you know, we should not eat their food, which is probably a good thing because they didn't have much. But we should eat our own. And I remember him opening a tin of Sainsbury's tuna. And you saw it slide from the tin and it went plonk onto the plate and it sort of lay there, quivering slightly, shining, you know. And anything less, you wanted to eat less than mm-hmm. that at that time. And anyway, after that, the, they, they kept asking us, do you want us to make you some food? And in the end, they made their meagre rations go round and help us out and they made curries for us and we gave them some Far superior. Far superior, absolutely fantastic. So I mean, I, I've always I've always eaten the local food, but sometimes it does have problems. In in we were going on the Sahara journey. We went to see to a refugee camp in Algeria, and they looked after us again extremely well. And they'd got a camel, um, some camel meat, which they had bought on the Monday. We were staying with them for four or five days. Very expensive. But they insisted that we must have meat at every meal. And on the very last day when we were leaving. She said, you know, oh, you must just have the last of the camel meat is for you, Michael. And I took it, and as, it, as I put it in my mouth, I knew the, this, this camel meat was it's past its sell-by date. Oh. Well past. Yes, there was a, but I'd eaten it by then. And she was smiling at me and looking like that, and I couldn't really sort of go, oh, take it out, don't give me this. 
but uh, I suffered. You suffered. I suffered after for this. two days. Yeah, but you had to keep working. We were doing an interview with a, a leader of the um, Free Polisario movement. Oh yeah. Uh, and. I would go in and ask him a few questions and then apologise, go out, throw up, come back and ask him oh, a few more questions. He didn't seem to notice particularly. He was just kind of more interested in the politics well, of the region. all the time. Yeah, but he does. <laughs> Perhaps he thought as my reaction to his talking about politics. It's obviously making this man sick. But, I mean, I've never really regretted ever eating the local food when I can. But you've got to be a bit careful in yeah. your own... Stomach is sort of conditioned and, against. And it. after a while, things that you would probably be put off by or a bit disgusted by just seem completely natural because you've yeah. seen everything and eaten everything. And I mean, people, I find in places where they have fewer ingredients, very often people make the most of them very cleverly and very skillfully. They use a few things but mix them together you, yeah. terribly well. Whereas we think we've got to have a big meal and it's got to have the meat there and the vegetables there and they've all got yeah. to have their own. And it's it's Wait. kind of almost your job to eat because that's how because I mean, if, if you don't have the language and you said food is the common language if you if mm. you sh decide not to eat you kind of already break a little bit of the rules of engagement with uh, oh, as, yeah. a, as a visitor you know it's it's not yeah. your job to reject food right but it's never been a problem for me I, I reject <laughs> I, I don't want to reject food I've learned most of the meals I've had have been fantastic and you know in Africa you just you end up having goat almost wherever you go. It's the main yeah. meat. So there's no it's point saying, I don't eat goat or anything like that. It's actually, great it's really nice. Yeah. Very nice. Should, I should have made goat for you next time. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I had the freshest goat ever because we went to a restaurant, very sort of dark night in, on Lake Tanganyika, and we went into someone said, you must go to this restaurant, it's very good. Total darkness. But was a, as we went in, there was a little goat sort of by the door, so a little pen going, yeah, and we all, lovely, oh, isn't it beautiful? All that. And we went in later, said, what's on the menu? Well, tonight, goat's the thing. And he said, oh, well, that's lovely. Yes, you've got some goat stew. And we just heard this little goat by the door going one last, said, yeah, mm. <laughs> and that was it. So it was, it was, and it was fresh goat, and we had to say, gosh, this really is fresh. So there again, you don't have, you get away from the processing of food which is all done elsewhere and all packaged up and give a sell-by date. You get away from all that. It's just you are eating the food that is in the yard yeah. or in the field next door. And I quite like that. And that is part of the, sto uh, part of the story, right? Yeah, I mean, well, you learn, a, a you learn little about how people live. They look good. That looks very good, that pasta. That's the parpadelli. Yeah. And that's the sauce. I'm just going to literally mm. put them together. And then we can, yeah. we can go and have it, a little sit-down. It's great to be in your kitchen oh. talking about all the problems I've had with bad camel and all that. And this well, there, this, there's not, this there's is clearly no, not going to be like there's that. There's no meat in this meal for no apparent no, reason, okay. but mm. um, like I said, it's a kind of um, North Africa meets Italy. But actually, you know, that, that connection between North Africa and Southern Europe has been going on for, you know, for centuries. Yes, yes, uh, when yeah. you go to Sicily yeah. or when you go to Southern Italy, you see those connections all the time. So yeah. chilies, capers, olives, you can find them both in yes. Southern Italy and in North, North Africa. Shall we move to the table? Do you want, should we go and sit down? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Lunch. Mm, that is nice. Yeah. Mm -mm. This is as simple as it gets. It's just some char grilled grapes with 
sherry vinegar and fennel oh. seeds mm. Mm. and burrata. Wow, that looks terrific, especially the burrata. So, do you so tell me about the, the latest project, the, the, sh the ship. Well, I was asked to give a talk at the London Club about one of the members of the club. The idea was you, a member alive or dead that interested you and you talked about it for an hour. And I had just been to Brazil doing a series there. And one of the things that came up was this idea of sort of imperial sort of botanical piracy in the 19th century. So that Kew Gardens particularly um, used to try and get seeds from all over the world of various exotic plants and trees which they could grow in the British colonies. Wow. And one of the great successes was getting rubber seeds from Brazil. Rubber was the biggest industry for them. And an Englishman smuggled out these seeds. They went to Kew. A man called Joseph Hooker, who happened to be the director of Kew at that time, uh, germinated them and they were sent out to Malaya or, or wherever the British possessions were in the east. And it created a, a huge industry and decimated the um, Brazilian. Brazilian industry. So that just disappeared wow. within about 20 years. So it was a, it was a, I thought it was an outrageous act, really. But there was this one guy who'd smuggled them out. He'd obviously sort of put them in and you know, got them under some sort of papers and sent them off on the ship. And it's, um, the, it's the equivalent of industrial espionage of the yes. 21st century. Yeah, yes. But the, yeah. once it's out, it's out. There's nothing you could do about no, it because no. they can I, just grow it and actually they, in other colonies. It turned out they grew better in the colonies because they had no natural predators, the rubber trees. And they could do it on an industrial scale, whereas in Brazil it was still a lot of rubber tappers working away. But anyway, this man Hooker interested me, this guy who'd organised it all, and was called Sir Joseph Hooker, very honoured and all that. And it turned out at the age of 22, he'd gone on a ship to Antarctica, a sailing ship in 1839. And he'd signed on as sort of assistant surgeon and botanist. So he got this job. And it was aboard a ship called Erebus, um, about 104 feet long, 60 men aboard. And they went on this extraordinary journey to Antarctica. They got further south than any other ship had ever been. They surveyed all the islands around Antarctica. They circumnavigated the continent. They were there for four years before they got back home. Wow. And nobody's ever heard of this. I'd never heard of that. You know, you'd heard Drake and Cook and yeah. that sort of thing. But I'd never heard of this particular expedition. So the ship was called the Erebus. And I wonder what happened to it later. And later, just a few years after it got back, it was chosen to go to the Northwest Passage. Uh, with a man called Sir John Franklin. They're going to try and get the route through from the Atlantic to the Pacific once and for all. Total disaster. All men lost, the ships disappeared, no one knew what happened to them. They gradually, over the years, pieced together the truth, which was that they you know, perished of starvation in the ice. And the Erebus was the ship that had carried them there. Then, four years ago, and this is the real, this is what really sort of made me say, I've got to do this, <laughs> the hull of the Erebus was discovered underneath the Arctic Ocean in northern Canada by some Canadian archaeologists. So, so the ship still exists. It's still there under the water wow. with secrets yet to be uncovered. Wow. So th they were actually seeking it actively or they just bumped No, they were seeking it, it actively. So it, they it, knew the story and they were it looking was, for it the It was a huge story for, for the Canadians. Uh, they, they kind of took over the whole story because it all happened on their territory in the far north. And it was one of the only things that really happened wow. over the years. Um, the search for the Northwest Passage. And Fantastic. so they were the ones who, who were looking for these ships. And, yeah. 
So then I thought, well, I'll let you eat something before you. I ask you more questions because it's impossible mm. to eat mm. and talk at the same time. So this is the problem mm. with this podcast. Mm. Mm. Gorgeous. Did you like this? Mm. Very much. I like uh, the grapes. So the grapes are just the grapes are just no, normal grapes that are mm. uh, red grapes that are tossed mm. in olive oil mm. and grilled. Mm. But what I think is really nice is the grapes with the fennel seeds because they sit around with the fennel seeds for a little mm. while mm. and just absorb those flavors. Sure. A bit, it's mm. a tiny bit of sugar and mm. some vinegar. It's all about what you sort of marinating and putting things together that would perhaps not normally be put mm. together. Because so a grape becomes a, a recipient of other tastes rather than just purely a grape. Precisely. And one of the things that I, I, I opened a restaurant called Nopi if, um, six years ago in mm. the West End mm. and mm. we uh, started serving burrata with um, white peaches and fennel seeds. Mm. So this is a kind of a take on that. And people were, were saying, you know, that is sacrilegious because in Italy you only serve burrata with, tomato, ah, with yes. tomatoes, yeah. no? yes. with nothing else. But after a while I, I started looking around and I realized also in Italy people use burrata in more creative mm. ways that, than people tend to think. Mm. So it's not just a combination of you know, basil mm. and burrata is such a great thing. Do you I cook? Suppose, I don't cook, no. No, I don't really. You never cook? I'm cooked? sure I can, but I don't. My wife's a very good cook. What does she's she, always what done does the she cooking. Cook? Well, mainly sort of she's English standards, really. Yeah. Pies and cottage pies and, and, uh, and nice stews and things like yeah, that. Yeah, they're delicious, aren't they? Um, you know, when they're done properly. Yes, oh, yes. Carl, my, my, my partner, he does a lot of... Um, you know, pies for the children and mm. ca- uh, casseroles and, and yeah. stews. And, and I think they prefer it to the food I make for them because it's much more familiar and easy to... Yes. It's not as challenging. You yeah. know, there's, there's they no... call it comfort food, but it's not, that's not a bad... Yeah, that tends to be a rather... You know, uh, comfort, I think, is, is very cultural down, relative. But I, but... Think it's, I think it's a nice it's... thing that food makes you feel comfortable as you eat it. Yes. Yeah. And Reassuring. Let me take this plate. That was plate delicious. Off. That was delicious. The burrata is just absolutely it's sensational. It's so good, isn't yeah. it? Maybe you mm. can make that. Yes, well, like, uh, <laughs> take me in hand, as they say. <laughs> so, yeah, good. Yeah. so this is the parpadelli mm. with yes. harissa and tomatoes, and mm. it really is kind of a hybrid. It's lovely, yes, nice thick pasta. Yeah, you like yeah. pasta. Yeah, I like pasta. I'm going to give you the salad afterwards. Yeah, so okay. Well, in a, tour, mm. a truly Italian fashion, we don't make, mix. This no, is something that no, my dad told me. Very good. Don't mix things on the plate. Mm-hmm. I was recently in North Korea. And what they do, um, I wanted they to do ask you about North cold Korea. Noodles. It was a big cold thing. noodles. Cold noodles, big sort of brown. Are they from wheat or from, mm. or from buckwheat? I think they're made from buckwheat. Because if they're brown, mm. often they're yeah. made out of buckwheat. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and they're eaten in enormous amount. You get a great big dish. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm on camera and I'm eating this and I'm slurping away. And I look around, everybody else in the restaurant also kind of just shoveling it so in. So you just did it. There's no tidy way of doing it. No. <laughs> Could you tell me how they la- you were allowed to go there, to North Korea? There are tours that go in. To North Korea, Westerners with, can go there with cameras, with the like no, TV cameras, no, crews. Not, not with TV crews. But on the other hand, the company it was basically ITN and Channel Five who cooked up this idea of me getting in there and filming the way I film in other places, just getting a sort of portrait of the people who live there. 
And it just is really, really difficult to get permission for a film crew. If you're associated with BBC, ITN or anything like that, forget it. It's got to, got to have a sort of small company that doesn't associate itself with the Western government because they're, you know, they're very suspicious of anybody going in there. If you can win the trust, and there was a, a man called Nick Bonner who helped us get in. He'd been working with the North Koreans for about 15 years, taking people in. And he said, I know, the, I know where to go to get the permissions and I think we can do it. And eventually it just suddenly worked and they said, on this day we'll be able to go and we can take cameras in. You, you will be supervised, put it that way, as we were. Yeah. Um, but I, I expected that. I, I feel very much about travel that a lot of it is trying to overcome prejudices which exist for no particular reason, usually political, yeah. ideological. Um, you can't go there because they're communist, because they're sort of capitalist, socialist, Muslim, whatever, you know. That shouldn't restrict you at all. I really believe the most important thing is to go, to go there. And I mean, I can remember when, uh, under apartheid in South Africa, a very difficult decision once when I was going through South Africa to get somewhere else. Should I go there? Should I not go there? And I'm really glad that in the end I decided I went, I went, spent a couple of days there on my way. And I had a, a little brief glimpse of what apartheid was really like. So I could see parks where it said no coloureds. I could see stations where there was a, an exit for blacks, an exit for whites. And I've, I've never forgotten that. That's yeah. absolutely riveted on my mind. And if I hadn't gone, I'd sat back and said, oh, we shouldn't go there, we shouldn't do this. I don't think I'd have seen that yeah. on the and, ground as it worked, and and how, it, how it affected the people. And then the, the viewers wouldn't have seen that because obviously they, they wouldn't travel there and wouldn't see. But with, well, with, no. with um, North Korea, mm. sorry, I'm going to turn it very... This is delicious, uh, oh, by the way, absolutely oh, thank fantastically you. delicious and wonderful. Very mundane again. I told you I was appreciating. <laughs> I know. It's not to be invited it's, again. <laughs> it's not camel, it's not goat. So I thought, you know, like, I, no. I'll leave that to your travel shows. But <laughs> about North Korea, how, so you ate these soba noodles in a big place. What else did you eat in North Korea? The kimchi, the pickled, kimchi. pickled cabbage. With, Do you like um, kimchi? With chilli. I did, actually, yes. I, I, when I first went, when I went to South Korea a long time ago, 1996, I didn't particularly like it. But going to North Korea, it's, it's such a staple there. You've got to kind of eat it. They serve it with everything. And actually, it's very nice. It's, very sort of, it's quite sharp. It's quite strong. But I, I found it didn't affect my digestive system. In fact, actually, I felt... It's, it's a great good. condiment to many things, mm. so I think it works think really it well yeah. with starchy things, like, you know, like rice and noodles, but it's also really good with meat. So, because every culture has this something that you put on the side that just kind of emphasizes mm. the food. I mm. mean, in our culture, it's mostly salt and pepper, but, you know, when mm. you go mm. places, when you've got the fish sauce and they've got mm. the... Mm. Or in Morocco, you've got cumin, or, you know, so you've got mm. these things mm. that are the mm. condiments of the culture. Mm. And I think kimchi just makes complete sense in that context, isn't it? With yeah, the, I mean, so it's a Korean national dish. It seems to work. There are, I mean, it's never the same. I found that there were always kind of thicker kimchis that were sort of slightly more sort of um, fluid kimchis or whatever you like, but I found it got on very well with them. And you learn, you learn to enjoy them yeah, more yes, than yes. with time. It's like I had yeah. that problem. Yeah, no, I, 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 I did. The great thing is about travelling and tasting and enjoying things, it, it's, it's pretty much endless. You can, you can never finish or come to an end or say you've done it all. Uh, I mean, yes. just you've got to be doing it all your life, really. I suppose there can be, you can say, well, 
I've come to an end of, as I have really, of doing the long travel series. But that's a judgment based on the way television is made and the fact one's done that and lots of other people are doing it at the moment. But in terms of travelling anywhere, you know, even just in this country, there are lots of places I've not been to. And I, you know, it really appeals to me because local areas produce not just local culture, whether it's some sort of the way they look, the way they talk, the way they paint, the design. It's, it's as you know, in the food and the... The, what they drink and all yeah. that. I find that absolutely fascinating, the differences. I really do. Yeah, it is really, really fascinating. I've done a bit of traveling uh, around the world, and everywhere I go, I find I had moments like you had, you know, where you come to, to meet someone who knows how to do something and you really want to learn, but you have no idea how to communicate. <laughs> and I had that when I went to try and learn how to make proper couscous with Berbers in the mountains in Morocco. Oh, yeah. And I was sitting there with this bunch of women, and they were literally... You know, we, we had no language in common and mm. we were making couscous and she and they were just all of a sudden started laughing, you know, mm-hmm. really hysterically. And I, I didn't <laughs> understand what I did yeah. funny or wrong. And then yeah. one of them, someone explained to me, she said she's never seen a man roll couscous in, his, in her <laughs> life. And she thought that was just the most hilarious thing that yeah. has ever occurred to her. And yeah, so those are really... I guess those are really special moments. But do you? Mm. I found your shows very generous. You know, there's a things unfold. It doesn't feel like anyone rushes anyone anywhere. Do you feel like that kind of generosity? Is, do, do, are you still allowed to do it in that particular way? Or if you compare your shows from, let's say, the late '80s, early '90s to the shows mm. you're making in the 2000s, are they? Do, do they kind of pace things up a bit? Or it's a good question because. I think subtly <laughs> things have changed. I don't know if it's just because I'm older now and looking back, but television has to deliver much more now. There's more of a science of what people want, what they need. They've done the surveys. And really, if I was to do my journeys now, I would probably have to start off by giving whoever was employing me um, an account of what I was going to do. This is what they are. This is what what happens now. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? How are you going to do it? You, and, you and never we really don't to know. Do we never had, never had to do that. We were trusted. After Around the World in 80 Days, Pole to Pole was just... Once one has sold the idea... That was it. You could just The BBC, go. well, we trust you and your team to make it. And the team was basically two directors and a crew of about five people. So there was a, maybe maybe eight people who were making the whole thing and then the editors, maybe two more. So a dozen people making the whole series. And it gave us an extraordinary amount of freedom. And I just, I think that we wouldn't be allowed that freedom now. Yeah. But then it was, it was a very experimental way of travelling. Um, you know, you had reporters who, like Alan Wicker... Yeah. Um, ..and James Cameron, who were brilliant reporters... And then you had people like David Attenborough who were doing this sort of going abroad for sort of more scientific reasons. And in the middle, there was the ordinary person going abroad. That didn't happen, really. You had to have a speciality which took you abroad. And so just someone who happened to be interested in travelling could be allowed to go and do eight <laughs> programmes or whatever it was, was extraordinary. But that was, was, it was I was able that... to do that. And I think probably what you're saying is that was why the, they felt loose and comfortable. We were supposed to do six episodes for Around the World in 80 Days. That was what the BBC had put up on their wall. They had made space for those six programmes in the schedule. 
On one of the programmes, we went on a Dow from Dubai to Bombay, as it was then. And it was a slow trip, and it took about seven days, and it wasn't even the Dow we were supposed to be on. It was quite awkward. Communication was difficult. And in no way could we hurry. We had to go at their pace. And the editor looked at all this, and, and on paper, that was supposed to be about five or six minutes of the journey. And then on to Bombay, India, and off to Hong Kong, blah, blah, blah. And the editor said, I think this could be a little bit longer because it's quite nice. There's quite nice pacing on this Dow. Uh, can you give me give me a few days and I'll, I'll come back to you? We said, all right. And at the end of the week, went back to him and he said, yes, I think I've got it to the right length. And um, we said, what's that? And he said, it's it's about fifty five minutes. <laughs> and it was a brilliant it was a brilliant stroke by the editor because actually you needed to play the pauses. You didn't you know you didn't want to be worried about going too quickly from place to place or people being bored. And it became one of the episodes that defined the series. Most people yeah. loved that episode because it was basically day in, day out, you're going across the Persian Gulf, but you're gradually learning how to communicate with the people on board the ship. You're making friends. And when, at the very end, when I go off the ship, there's old Kasim, who was the oldest man on board, and he just suddenly hugged me as I as I left, <laughs> left the Dow. And that was just because we'd been together for so long, and it was a lovely moment. And that yeah. is fantastic so because, that was, that, that, yeah. like you say, that yeah. that is. But I think that's probably why you, they took you because you know you said you didn't have a speciality, so you were <laughs> yes, not a scientist exactly. and all that. But you could just yeah. forge these relationships. Well, it was a terrifying brief to do, I tell you. <laughs> I thought what a wonderful thing to do, and on day one when I actually had to get up and go, I thought, how do I do this? You know, it's all ad libbed. I mean, what are we going to do? What are we going to see? There's no script or anything like that. Just me bungling through the world. <laughs> But it worked. More it bungling, really better. Worked. Cheers. Cheers, yeah. Thank I'll you. give you some mm. salad. Mm. Your children, did you ever take them when you were filming or not really? Traveling? No, Traveling? No, no, no. No, I mean, it was definitely a no-family business-like have... trip. And we did go, we used to travel quite a lot when the children were young. Um, we'd go to Africa and the Seychelles and we were lucky. And now you have, grand, now you have grandchildren. Mm. What yeah. ages are they? Um, Twelve, eight, two and a half, and about three months. Oh, well, mm. there's a real Just recent wonderful. arrival. Yeah, yeah. And with my children, I, I, they, they like to travel. I, I don't think I've ever persuaded them to, you know, do the kind of travelling I've done. They tend to want to go to New York or somewhere like that. They, they know. Ah, they don't go to exotic places. No, not no, exotic. No, really. no, not really. Although my my daughter, who who's um, she goes to India quite a lot and mm. she trains in yoga and all that sort of stuff. Oh yeah. Um, no, the others. Well, choose they make their own journeys. They go to a city or something for a weekend, which yeah. is what my wife and I do now. We don't go on long. And your, your, your granddaughter, the twelve-year-old, is does she watch your show? No, your old, my grand, your grandson, grandson is twelve-year-old. Yeah. Does he? Because he's in the age now that he could watch your travel. Show. Has he watched those? I'm ashamed to say he hasn't really. No, no. He's just got. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. I think that's the problem of having a dad who's been well known over many years, whether it was Monty Python or whatever, and all that sort of thing. The children actually look for something else. They look for their own thing. Yeah. I think that's partly, partly because at school, you, you know, it must be very difficult for them. They're known as having a famous yeah. father. So it can easily be picked on when well, you've got that good mark because you're 
dad so-and-so and the teacher loves him or something and is like it, that. It's also the case that they want to carve their own. Okay, it's very exactly. difficult to be to, you, to think you might be overshadowed. And, and, exactly. And, no, I, I, I think that's, that's true. And I think well, my middle son could have been a very good comedy writer. He's very good. He does very funny speeches and all that sort of thing. He's got a very good take on life. And, and he obviously didn't really particularly want to do it because I was doing it. Oh, yeah, actually, talking about fathers and sons, so because I, I read you said that your dad was not that happy about your career choice, at least at the beginning. No. And since I had this echoes with where my dad reacted to when, when I decided to be a chef, I just I thought, like, was, it, what, what, was he actively engaged in this or, or, or you just knew he wasn't that happy with the, your career choice? He was always a very cautious man. And I, I think now that he, like my mother really, had been... What had their life been like the first... I was, he was 43 when I was born. Oh. And during those 40 years, he'd been through two, you know, two world wars, a major depression. And so when I was growing up, all he just wanted to do was not rock the boat, keep things steady. Let's just kind of calm things down. And so... He, I mean, he was very conservative, I suppose, in that way. and wanted to sort of hang on to the old, the old ways. He um, wanted to make sure that you were safe, kind of, in, in your choices. Yes, but also on the limited amount of money that he had, that I could get a decent education. And that was always, I think, must have been in the back of his mind, because he paid me to go to a private school or public school. And I now know that was about sort of a third of his entire yearly income just to get me there. So wow. there's things going on, so he didn't want me to blow it by doing anything frivolous like acting, which my sister wanted to do. Um, <laughs> that was the road to ruin. So what did so, he say to you? Well, he didn't really say, it just... I, I, it was, he, I was discouraged from doing any acting while I was at school, very definitely. I you know, made that clear that I was there to work and acting was something you could do in the holidays, but that was all. And it's, was there a point where he kind of... Um, Put his foot down? No, 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 later on when he acknowledged mm. that um, per perhaps you made the right, <laughs> the right choice after all. Well, my poor dad, he, he got Parkinson's fairly early on, not early on, but when he was in his 70s. I mean, when, when Monty Python came along, I think he was just... <laughs> Being <laughs> utterly <laughs> bewildered by the whole thing, he just didn't watch it. Absolutely, I don't. I, I didn't think he really knew quite what was happening <laughs> at all. Um, whereas my mother was much more, much more open to it, which was the the other way around. Usually, it, it was people, it was men who liked it, and women who didn't. Yeah, like it's it. a it's a men's yeah. comedy, isn't it? Like, yeah, generally speaking. So I think he, I, I, I never knew quite what he thought about it. He was just greatly relieved that I. I was in something that was popular you, and making enough you, money. You can make a living. Yeah, make a living. Exactly, exactly that. That's what it was all yeah. about. Because my dad also, when I decided to study, I went to university, and then when I graduated, I, I chose not to carry on with my academic career. What was and that? What were you I studied studying? Liter literature and philosophy mm. at, at the university in Tel Aviv, and I finished my second degree. And it was in the mid-90s, and I just decided, I said to, to my parents, I'm going to take a year off, and I'll, I'm going to learn how to cook properly. And my dad was mm. just distraught. I mean, he, mm. he was a very gentle, kind person, so he just, you know, he sent me a, a letter, and he said, you know, you do what you need to do, but, you know, I don't know that that is necessarily the right thing to do after spending all those years, these years at university. Oh, really? Oh. And, um, but when I turned 40... 
I had a big birthday and there was a lot of people around a big table and my dad was the last to speak. So each one sort of said something mm. about me and they said, my dad said to me, uh, the one thing I wish for you is that you never listen to me again. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, that's very nice. Well, that's a nice resolution. Uh, yeah, it was I very... never really had that resolution with my dad, sadly. My mother, who is a, a keen churchgoer, became a wonderful apologist for everything because she was living in a small village in Suffolk. When the life of Brian came along, you know, it was like they so didn't... She was almost yeah. about to be sort of, you know, people in shops would say, it was just... just you know, that's, that your son's been in that um, terrible film. That's about <laughs> Jesus and all that. She said, not terrible at all. And I told her, I primed her, I said, look, it's not, it's not an assault on people who have a faith or people who believe in Jesus. It's about, it's about the appropriation of religion by authority, you know, by hierarchies and all that sort of thing. And she sort of got that. She got that. <laughs> I heard it once in a shop saying, no, it's not about Jesus at all. It's about people who appropriate religion from, uh, to use as some means of political control. Of, Maybe it's, it's all right, the, Mrs. Payne. Yeah, it's the opposite yeah, of hearing your, newspaper. your children quoting you. It's hearing <laughs> yeah, your parents yes, quoting yes, you. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I put them through it. So what's in the salad? There's the a salad sort, dressing. Sort of dressing is... Um, this salad is really all about the dressing because I like the gem lettuce because it's hard and crunchy. And, mm, yeah. And the dressing is really, it's just... You can get so your teeth yeah. into it. Yeah, yeah. Other, other lettuce sort of flaps about. Exactly. I, I stick, like those hearts. Sticks to the roof of your mouth. Exactly. Mm. And uh, so it's got avocado and lemon juice and a few herbs and ginger, garlic. So everything put together and bits. And it just, yeah, I think it just goes really well. Often people ask me... Well, what should I serve with your food, with your dish that's in my one of my books? And I say, really just a salad because mm. it's got so much mm. already there, or salad or rice or, you know, a start. Yeah. You don't need that much apart from that. And that's what I appreciate about cooking nowadays is that I suppose when I was younger, it's all about filling you up, you know? Yeah. Because this meal's got to fill you up. <laughs> and so you did eat a lot of suet and a lot of heavy pastry and a lot of potatoes and all that. And that was... That was the aim, to keep you alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just to make sure you get <laughs> up in the morning. Whereas sort of um, my, my parents never, my mother who cooked, never would have mixed all these things together, really, yeah. the way you do. And yet they're all there. It's just Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just, Nothing here is... Uh, I, I, and there's no one thing. I mean, I don't feel at the moment, having had a delicious meal, that I'm at all over full or anything like yeah. that. It's just I, I have those tastes in my mouth, which are very, very pleasant, but, you know, I'm, I'm not sort of... Yeah. Stuffed, as we used to say at school. I'm going to serve us dessert. Yeah. Oh, great. It's a kind of a deconstructed cheesecake. That's essentially, it's, it's cream cheese and some feta whipped up together and cherries, fresh cherries that were just macerated and cooked with a bit of syrup and a hazelnut crumble that goes on top and really just kind of something sweet to end yeah. up our lovely afternoon. And it's nice, it doesn't look like a cheesecake, it's not something you have to slice, it's yeah. all there, all the elements and they it's, look rather okay, This is, what, this is the one thing that I've learned from, from the British, to do all those kind of, you know, De not deconstructed, just not constructed desserts. Yes. You know, things that you throw up in a yes. bowl, like a mess or... Yeah, or, yeah, uh, eaten mess or that sort of uh, yes. Eaten mess yeah. or a trifle or things that are just literally just placed in a bowl. So you don't need to work. The, fr the French would make it 
hold with gelatin to you know yes so if you throw a yeah. stone at it it'll st still stay you know, in shape <laughs> swan's head sticking yeah. out and, uh, but uh, the british way of doing things that are just beautifully layered and have got all mm. sorts of flavors i thought this is definitely mm. uh, kind of inspired by that and that's very if i could say a very friendly looking dish you know kind of i like looking at that and it's sort of there's some dishes which quite sometimes are quite cool rather intimidating not none of the ones you've given me oh, today they've always been, always been very <laughs> friendly and made me feel comfortable yeah. so, we, I, them, I, so it was a, a friendly end to a friendly conversation yeah it was, it was, <laughs> it was terrific no I'm, I'm great privilege to um, to be cooked for like that and um i wish all my lunches could be that way <laughs> i'm a great <laughs> one for lunches actually i think it's a yeah because we don't take enough time at lunchtime I no no we all feel lunch is the one we can avoid and we eat in the evening and yet a good lunch, which we all know from holidays, is wonderful because then you have the afternoon yeah. to recover, go to sleep, read a book, what you can around, do now, swim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read a book. Actually, I have oh, a book great. I have to read by the by the Thank end of you. next week. Thank you to, for coming to my house. It was a wonderful pleasure. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. And I thought I'd the, seen everywhere in the world and no. all the beautiful stories. <laughs> Thank Fantastic. you, and yours too. Great. My thanks to Michael, and thank you for listening. The Simple Pleasures podcast is sponsored by my new cookbook, Ottolenghi Simple, which is available at all good bookshops. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, from me, Yotam Ottolenghi, goodbye. <laughs>